The following message is brought to you by New Song Church and Pastor Joshua Blunt in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information on New Song, visit us online at newsongpeople.com. of our series, What's Wrong With This Picture? And as I prepared this message, prayed over this message, um, I felt like when I was done, I just was fully convinced or fully persuaded, as Tondra I would say, fully persuaded that today, April 18th, is going to be a day when something shifts, when something clicks, when something unlocks. I felt like the Lord said, today is a day that loop mode is coming off. I have a son, Gus. He's almost 13. And I love that kid. And he's fun to mess with. Um, one of my favorite things to do right now is to, to, when he's not in his room, I'm going up there taking laundry or something. I'll say to his Alexa, Alexa, play You Are the Wind Beneath My Wings by Bette Midler on loop mode. And so the song just plays over and over again. Or Alexa, play I Love My Mom by Blake Rules. If you don't know I Love My Mom by Blake Rules, you need to look it up. It's my favorite song. Um, and then uh, the, the, the point being that my goal is that he's going to come back up into his room a little while later, hopefully with a friend, and this embarrassing song is going to be playing. And he comes in and he's like, Alexa, stop. Um, so today's the day loop mode is coming off. Turn to your neighbor and say, Alexa, stop. We're coming out of loop mode. You're at New Song Church. I don't know if you noticed, but the name of this church is New Song, and I believe that God has a new song for you today, that you're going to step into that new song, that song that you're tired of, that song that you wish you would have never started to begin with, the song that has just been wearing you down and wearing you out. Today is a new song day. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you that when two or more are gathered, that you are in their midst, that you are here in our midst this morning, that you want to meet with us, that you want to do business with us, that you want to deal with our hearts, Lord. We say, speak, Lord, we are listening. Come and tear down the walls. Lord, we, we want to have a fertile heart. Make the soil of our hearts fertile so that when this seed goes out that it takes root and it produces fruit in our lives lord we're listening speak in jesus name amen amen all right as we tackle this question what's wrong with this picture uh, we have to talk about sin because sin is what's wrong with a lot of people's pictures and I know that sin, man, I can feel the energy leave the room when I say we're going to be talking about sin. I felt it in first service too. But we have to talk about sin because I know we want to hear messages on grace and freedom and victory and our purpose. But if we're tangled up in sin, we're not going to understand the grace of God. We're not going to understand the purpose that he has for us to walk in. We're not going to experience freedom. So we got to talk about sin, especially in the social climate in which we find ourselves. The climate, the media, the, the mainstream media, social media, society, the big C church, even, we've done things to trivialize sin, to make sin seem like it's not that big of a deal. Think about it. We call things that have nothing to do with sin, sin, like a decadent dark chocolate dessert on a menu. It's called a sinful dessert. Dessert, or there's a whole makeup 
a company called Sinful Colors, and it's bright blues and oranges and yellows, and then like when you're at the nail salon, you're always going to find a nail color called Sin. <laughs> but how many know that eating a piece of dark chocolate cake or wearing bright blue mascara or painting your nails bright red, that's not Sin, yet we call it Sinful. But then on the other hand, we call things that are sin, everything but sin. We've renamed sin. We call it addiction. We call it struggle. We call it a mistake. We call it an error. We call it a tendency, a disease, a weakness. We call sin my bad, my choice. It's a personality flaw. It's an inherited trait. We call it self-expression. No, that, I, that wasn't a sin. That was just a moment of weakness. That wasn't sin. That's just, that's just an addiction that I'm struggling with. Listen, we need to, for ourselves and for the world around us, we need to call sin, sin. Disguising sin by calling it by something other than the name sin is not helping anyone. It's just confusing everyone. Jesus called sin, sin. The woman caught in adultery, he did not say to that woman, now go, and no more self-expressing. He didn't say, now go, (laughs) now go, and don't make that mistake again. He didn't say to her, now go, and find freedom from your sexual addiction. He said to her, go and sin no more. Jesus was extremely kind in doing this. We have a saying at New Song, clear is kind. He was extremely clear and therefore extremely kind. We need to call sin, sin. So what exactly is sin? What constitutes as a sin? I think this is something we all struggle with. Is it just when we break one of the Ten Commandments? Or we've heard people say, well, that's a sin for her, but it's not a sin for me. So what is sin? I think one of my favorite explanations of sin is one that a mother wrote to her son. I think moms have a special anointing to break down the word. And, and to, to, to break down these big concepts into these uh, ways that you can easily understand it. And that's what this mom was doing when she was writing to her 22-year-old son, John Wesley, who would go on to found the Methodist Church. Susanna Wesley writes, Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things, Whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may seem in itself. Let's unpack this just a little bit further because I like to unpack stuff, all right? Whatever weakens your reason. Okay, reason says, do not lie to get your kids into into some prestigious college. Like reason says, don't do that. That's dumb. Reason says, do not Photoshop a picture of your kid's face on another kid's body so that they can get into this college that you want them to go to. Reason says, that's super lame. But your pride comes in and your pride says, no, I want to be able to brag about where my kids go to college. So your pride weakens your reasoning. That's sin. Whatever impairs the tenderness of your conscience. Your conscience, this place where the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you, that still small voice when he wants to lead you. Those who are children of God are led by the Spirit of God. He wants to lead you and say, don't do that. Don't go down that path. 
This is not how you're going to honor God with your life. But what are those things that you do that cause you to mute the Holy Spirit, that cause you to hush the Holy Spirit? When you do that, when you do those things, you become conscience impaired, like hearing impaired. What are the things that are impairing the tenderness of your conscience, that sin? Whatever obscures your sense of God. We've all been there before where we're going, man, God, I can't see you. I can't hear you. I'm not hearing your voice. I, 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 know, I don't feel like I can sense your presence. We're at a worship night and everybody's like, man, the presence of God, this and that. And you're like, I'm not, I don't, I'm not experiencing that. What is that? Sometimes you feel as if God is hiding from you. I promise you he's not. But if you were to examine your heart, when did you kind of start to feel that way? I bet if you go back and look, you're going to discover that it was around the time when you started loving something more than him. That's idolatry. Whether it was your job or your spouse or that new baby, whatever it is, you started loving that thing more than him. It's a big old idol. You set it in front of him and it obscures your sense of God, that sin. Whatever takes off your relish for spiritual things, not like hot dog relish. You can take your relish. You can take relish off your hot dog, okay? That's not sin. But don't put ketchup on your hot dog because that's nasty. That's probably a sin, okay? No, relish, relish means... I had a kid at my house once. They wanted ketchup. They weren't my kid. They wanted ketchup on their hot dog, and I just said no. Like, Nope, that's gross. Okay. <laughs> Relish here means great enjoyment. Whatever causes you to stop greatly enjoying spiritual things. What is that? You used to love going to church, but you don't anymore. Why? Examine your heart. You used to love going to small group. You used to love reading your Bible. You used to love spending hours a day praying in the spirit. What is it? What did you used to greatly enjoy, but you don't anymore? What caused that? Maybe it's a show on Netflix that you we used to love going to bed, reading your Bible, but that show is so good. It, take, it took off your relish for spiritual things. Maybe it's a, a, a root of bitterness, some, something the pastor said or somebody at the church said, and it makes you not want to be at church. You don't enjoy church anymore. What's that thing that causes you to take off your relish for spiritual things? Whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind. Those things that elbow everything else out of the way, your reason, your mind, your spirit, the voice of God, and it says, no, the body's taking the driver's seat. The body's going to take the steering wheel, and the body's going to take this thing wherever it wants to go, whatever I want, whatever feels good to me. What is it that increases the authority of your body over your mind? This is sin, however innocent it may seem in itself. Romans 3.23 tells us that we all sin. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. So what's wrong with this picture? Sin. Sin is messing up a lot of people's pictures, and it's what it's been doing since it entered the world, since it came on the scene. God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and it was picture perfect. It was picture perfect. They had everything they could ever need. They walked with God. It was perfect until they took a bite of the tree that God told them not to eat from or the fruit from the tree that God told them not to eat from. They took a bite of that and sin entered the world and it ruined the perfect picture. Sin has consequences. 
Adam and Eve used to walk with God and be in fellowship with God. They had everything that they needed, but now after sin entered, they felt guilt and shame and condemnation immediately. They felt separated from God. They wanted to hide from God. They were banished from this picture-perfect paradise, and the whole world was put under a curse. Sin has consequences. This is why Jesus told the woman caught in adultery to go and sin no more. Not because he wanted to stop her having fun. He knew that sin was tearing her soul apart. He knew that it was causing her to feel guilt and shame and worry and fear and confusion and worthlessness. He knew that this was not the good and perfect and pleasing will that his father had in mind when he knit that woman together in the darkness of her mother's womb. He knew that. He knew that she would see that sin did not care about her at all, that it was a liar, a deceiver, and that that would leave her. It would leave her for dead, literally there waiting to be stoned. He knew that it had consequences. Sin ruins family pictures. Sin ruins self portraits. Sin ruins all the pictures. That's what's wrong with the picture. Now, let me give you some good news this morning. Are you ready for some good news? Okay, I'm going to read to you from Romans 5, 15 through 18. But I, I'm not just going to read to you. I want you to read it with me. Not like out loud, but read it with me. Don't check out. I know I do this. Sometimes when scripture goes on the screen, I just like disengage for some reason. I think it's a, it's a ploy of the enemy, okay? So today I want you to lean in and I want you to look at every word on the screen. Read these words. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to us this morning? Romans 5. 15 through 18, for the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, messed up a bunch of pictures, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ, and the result of God's gracious gift, the result of his gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. That's good news. You don't like the results that sin left you holding, that that messed up picture has you in? God's results are different. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we're guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater, this is my favorite part, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and over death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, 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 Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. So, Adam messed up the picture for a bunch of people. And Jesus, Jesus, his death and resurrection, it didn't just come in and like fix up the picture, Photoshop the picture, like, like take Satan out of the picture, wide it out. He didn't just come and try to fix the picture. He threw the old picture out and he gave us a brand new picture. And it's a picture that is based on his perfection, not based on ours. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God? The grace of God. But I want to be clear this morning because clear is kind, right? The grace of God is not 
a license to sin. The grace of God isn't like, well, I got this new picture and it's perfect and I can't mess it up. So now I just get to live freely, right? That's not, that's not how it works. Look at this with me in Titus 2, 11 through 14. It says, for the grace of God has been revealed. Here's the new picture, the perfect picture. It's been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And because it's been revealed, we're instructed to now live however we want and not, not have to think about sin. No, it says, it's been revealed, and now we're instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. So here's how it works. God's grace has been revealed. He has given you a perfect picture. There is nothing that you can do to mess the picture up, and there is nothing that you can do to polish the picture up, but there is so much that you can do to honor the picture, to honor the cross, to honor God's grace, to honor the gift of his righteousness that is available to all who will receive it. Not to all who are raised in church, not to all who can memorize a couple of scriptures, not to all who are a certain denomination, a certain uh, a creed, tribe, or tongue. It's available to all who will receive it. So how do we honor this amazing gift that's greater than sin that causes us to be able to triumph over sin? How do we do this? How do we triumph over sin? I know there's a lot of people in this room that you want to do this. You want to honor that picture that Jesus has given to you. You want to honor this greater gift of grace and righteousness with your life. You want to be devoted to God. You want to be triumphing over sin instead of sin triumphing over you, but sin, but sin, you, you don't, you just can't seem to stop sinning. And you don't want to. I believe the majority of people aren't looking for that license to sin. They're frustrated and they want to stop sinning, but they just can't seem to do it. Like, how do we triumph over sin? This is that same song stuff that I was talking about, where you feel like you're stuck in the same sin. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's, maybe it's pride, idolatry. Maybe it's deception. Maybe it's selfishness. And, and you feel like that song sings, the sin owns you. The sin, uh, it, it defines you. You're never going to triumph over this sin. And then maybe you feel like you're finally coming to the end of that song. It's like, it's been 16 weeks since I did that sin. And then you stumble and you sin again. And that same song starts over again. And you're tired of it. You want a new song. Or maybe it's not the same sin, but maybe it's just this weakness, just feeling susceptible to sin. Like if you were to say, do you feel like someone wants to ask you, do you feel like you're triumphing over sin through Jesus? You'd be like, no, I feel like sin kicks my butt on the daily. Today is a new song day. Amen. Okay. So I want to share with you a couple of thoughts on how we as believers can triumph over sin through Jesus, how we can walk in this. And it's not a formula. It's not do these three things and everything is going to work out just the way you hoped it would. This is a, a, this is principles from the word of God that when applied by a person who's in relationship with God will produce fruit, okay? Number one, stay satisfied in God. If you want to triumph over sin through Jesus, you have to stay satisfied in God. Pastor Josh read this quote, the beginning of this quote from John Piper a couple of weeks ago in our self-control series or self-control message in the Fruit of the Spirit series. I want to read to you the whole quote. 
Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied in God. No one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out some promise of happiness. And that promise enslaves us until we believe that God is more to be desired than life itself, which means that the power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's. No one sins out of duty. We don't sin because we have to. We sin because sin holds out this promise of happiness. Sin promises to satisfy these three cravings that we all have for pleasure, for power, and for possessions. It says, chase after these things, you'll find these things, and you'll be satisfied, and you'll experience happiness, but that's not how it works. We cannot experience true satisfaction apart from anything except in Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, we are satisfied. The great philosopher, Justin Bieber. (laughs) He makes it pretty plain in his new song. We're in this together. He says, because at 17, I had a milli. That's a million dollars, in case you were wondering. Women throwing themselves at me had me going silly. On the surface, I felt like the man. But deep inside, I felt deprived just like an empty can. I had everything in life that people strive for just to ask the question, what are we alive for? So we had everything that our flesh craves. He had pleasure, women throwing him throwing themselves at him. He had possessions, a million dollars at age 17. He had power. He had influence. He had a platform. He had all of these things. You'd think he would be satisfied, but he wasn't. He felt like an empty can because he wasn't being satisfied in Christ alone, in a relationship with a living, loving Savior. We have to stay satisfied in God. This is why we sin. Because we're not satisfied in God. We somehow think that this broken world and the broken people in it can satisfy these longings and these cravings that we have when only God can. In the the musical Hamilton, Alexander, he sings to Angelica, you're like me, you're never satisfied. I'd argue that we're all like Hamilton. We'll we'll all never be satisfied unless we learn to be satisfied in God. And if you don't learn to to be satisfied, fully satisfied in him, you're going to keep having this conversation with him. God, I love you, but I think we should see other people. (laughs) I mean, I still want you to answer when I call or when I text. I love you, but I want to see other people because this relation, I'm not satisfied in this relationship anymore. It's me, God. It's not you. It's me. But we should see other people. Listen, if that's where you're at, I just want to help you out. It is you. If you're not satisfied this morning, it is not because he's not satisfying. If you're not satisfied this morning, it's because you're not seeking to know him and be known by him. You're not communing with him. You're not devouring his word to find out who he is. If you're not satisfied, it's on you. It's not on him. He's not boring. Maybe you're bored with him because you think that you can be satisfied coming to church twice a month. That's not how it works. This is We have an infinite God, the angel are surrounding and singing holy holy because all the time every second
second new dimensions of his glory are being revealed to him. This is our God. He is satisfactory. If he's not satisfying, it's on you. It's not on him. Now, the Holy Spirit wants you to know this this morning. Don't be intimidated by this. Don't be overwhelmed by this. Because I know there are people in here going, crap, I got to get satisfied. (laughs) How do I do this? How do I get satisfied in God? And he's saying, don't be overwhelmed. Don't be intimidated. He said, just come to me daily with a heart that says, I want nothing more than to be known by you, than than to know you. This is what my heart desires. Come to him with a heart that says, I believe that your unfailing love is better than life itself, or I want to believe that. Would you help me believe that? Would you help me to believe that your unfailing love is better than this whole bottle of wine that I'm going to take to numb myself? Your unfailing love, God, is better than that five-second orgasm produced by pornography. I believe that your unfailing love, God, is better than that compromise I have to make in order to gain popularity. Your unfailing love, God, is better than cheating on that test to get the grave, the grade that I wanted. You have to come to the place where you believe that his unfailing love is better than money, than sex, than power. It's better than life itself. Come to him with a heart that says, I want to be satisfied in you, and he will give you the desires of your heart because he's good like that. He's good. Number two, pray to be led and defended by God. If you want to triumph over sin through Jesus Christ, you need to be praying about it. Pray to be led. Pray to be defended. Prayer works. Can I get some witnesses this morning? Prayer works, right? 1 John 5.14 says, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, He hears us. Jesus makes it clear over and over again in red letters. If you're in relationship with him, if you're abiding in him, if you know his will and you pray his will, which is not a mystery, his will is his word. If you know his will and you pray it, then you can be convinced that he hears you when you pray and that he will act to fulfill his will. So are you praying his will concerning sin? Do you know his will concerning sin? Yeah, you do. We just read about it. His will concerning sin is that you would triumph over it through Jesus Christ. So are you praying his will when it comes to sin? Or is it just kind of like, Lord, I love you. Help me have a good day. Bless this food to our body in Jesus' name. Amen. No, we've got to pray his will concerning sin in our lives. We need to be praying, Lord, your will is that I will triumph over sin. So help me, God, walk in your will today. Help me triumph over sin. When the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, Jesus said, okay. And he laid out the most amazing model prayer. It's amazing. When you study it, oh, it's so good. He said, teach us to pray. And he said, here's how you do it. Pray, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. He says some petitions. The sixth petition is, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So here in the model prayer, Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray to be led by him and defended by him against evil, against Satan. Pray like this. Are you praying like that? Jesus, lead me. 
I don't know what this day holds, but you do. So I'm giving you permission. I'm asking you to be my guide, to be my leader through this day. Lead me not into temptation. And if I start to go down the wrong path, hold me back. Pray that he would defend you. Make, make me an impenetrable, an impregnable uh, uh, stance against the attacks and the, sin, and the temptations of Satan. We need to be praying like this. Maybe you, you are dealing with the um, sin of pornography and you read a book on how to beat pornography and you did all the things. Like you threw away your phone, uh, your smartphone, you got a dumb phone, you don't have apps, you don't have internet, you have accountability on your computer. Um, you're doing all the things. That's great. Do the things. Jesus said if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. So do the gouging. But also... You need to partner with God in prayer. If you're not partnering with God in prayer, if you're not praying and asking him to help you triumph over sin, you must believe that you can handle the sin on your own. And you can't. You can't just remove all the external temptations and not do business with God in your heart on a daily basis. Because what you're saying is, as long as these temptations are out of my life, I'll be fine. I can modify my lifestyle and sin's not going to have a hold on me, but that's not how it works. We need to pray and we need to partner with God and say, God, I want your will in my life concerning sin. Lead me and defend me in Jesus' name. Number three, if we're going to triumph over sin through Jesus, we need to dare to be a sinner. Dare to be a sinner. Culture tells us to dare to do a lot of things. It's kind of cheesy, like dare to dream and dare to be brave and dare to lead and dare to fly and dare to keep kids off drugs, right? There's a lot of things that we've been dared to do, but today my call to everyone in this room is that you would dare to be a sinner. Now, I know that this statement is making some people in this room extremely uncomfortable, And I get it, because when I read this statement in Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, last year, I was like, oh, Bonhoeffer, that's too far. Like, I am not going to highlight that sentence. I don't agree. You should not be daring people to be a sinner. But then I kept reading, and I was like, oh, 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 my word, go back and highlight and star and dog ear this page because this is a life-changing truth. This is something that I wish I had heard and understood in my youth. This is something I wish my husband had heard and understood in his youth. This is something I want my children to hear and understand in their youth, that they can dare to be a sinner. Now, Bonhoeffer wasn't daring people to revel in sin. He was daring people to take off their masks. He was daring people to stop lying to themselves and to their brothers and sisters in Christ, pretending that they are without sin. He was daring people to stop pretending to have it all together, to stop pretending uh, or to stop being fake. When you dare someone to do something, it's normally something they don't want to do, right? You don't have to dare me to eat a whole piece of coconut cream pie from Pie Junkie. I will do it gladly, happily eat that piece of coconut cream pie. But you do have to dare me to eat a piece of like a a dog food kibble. And even if you dared me to do it, I probably wouldn't do it. Even if you triple dog dare me, I wouldn't eat it. My point is we have to be dared to do something that we don't want 
to do. Bonhoeffer was daring his readers to be sinners because we don't want to expose ourselves as sinners. It's not something that we want to do, but it's something that we need to do. I've been in um, churches and in some church circles where nobody would dare to be a sinner. We were all sinning, but we weren't daring enough to be sinners. And I was thinking about that this week and what it produced. And this just came out of me as I was writing. It produced prideful, arrogant, judgmental cliques consisting of miserable people who were emotionally withdrawn, surfacy, fake, alone in our sin, hypocrites who would turn their back on others if sin was exposed, not because it was confessed, but because they were caught. We would turn our backs on them. Uh, No one was daring enough to be a sinner. And because of that, guess what? Sin was having its way with everybody in that circle. Uh, uh, there was porno- pornography addictions. There was, there was um, affairs, emotional affairs, sexual affairs. There was homosexuality. There was lying. There was sneaking. There was premarital sex. Everyone was sinning, but no one dare be a sinner. This is not how God set up the church that we would come together in these church circles and be outwardly pious and devout and act like we're a church family, but really, in reality, we're all isolated and alone in our sin. Nobody knows what's really going on. That's not how God set it up. That's not the church that they imagined. James 5.16, look at this with me. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. James is basically saying, therefore, I dare you to be a sinner. Therefore, I dare you to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you'll be healed. I wish I could go back in time. Like, I really do. I wish I could go back in time to those church circles and be the one that was daring to be a sinner. Be the one that said, hey, I'm married and I'm in an emotional affair and I've crossed lines and I'm hiding my cell phone bill from my husband and I want to break free from this. I want to get out of this. This is what's going on in my life. I wish I could go back in time. Thank God for his mercy, that mercy met dirty and he pulled me up out of that, that he set Josh free from what he was dealing with. But I'm telling you, we learned something. We learned something about the power of confession. If we hadn't learned how to break through and break through or break through and break free through confessing, this church would not be here today. Our marriage would not be here today. This practice of confessing to one another saved our marriage. Our kids would not be here today. I want you to see the benefit of confessing to others. I've got three things as we close. Confessing our sins to fellow believers, it creates real biblical community. Not fake, not like it looks pretty, but if you really got down in it, you'd see these people aren't really, they don't know anything about each other's lives. They just go to church together on Sunday. It creates real biblical community because it brings you out of darkness. It brings you out of isolation. It brings you uh, into the body of Christ when you have that confession before a believer. The second thing that it does is it crucifies our flesh. Bonhoeffer says, confessing to others is the most profound. We like profound stuff, right? It's the most profound type of humiliation. 
humiliation. It's a profound type of humiliation. You know, if you've ever confessed to somebody, if you ever stood before a brother and sister and confessed, it is hard. It is humiliating. That's why we have to dare to do it. But if you know, if you stand before a sister or brother in Christ and you say, not like, um, I'm dealing with some anger. Can you pray for me? Or unspoken sin issue. Just lift me up. Unspoken sin thing. No, but if you confess, like the full 100% confess, so many people will confess, but they'll only do like 98%. What if you said, nope, I'm going to tell it all. The full 100%. I'm not going to hold back. You know what happens when you do that? You, you experience this painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother or sister in Christ. And it's hard, but there is a promise on the other side of it. And Jesus shows us how this is done. Jesus, he suffered a scandalous, public, humiliating death before the eyes of others. He wasn't ashamed to be crucified as an evildoer. We should not be ashamed to be crucified, to confess and to let our sin and our, or to let our pride and our flesh die before a brother or sister in Christ. Scripture says we're supposed to share in the suffering of Jesus. Remember, we sang it on Good Friday. Oh, just to know you when you're suffering. How are we gonna know him in his suffering? We do this by not holding back from shameful public death of our sin through confession. Death through confession. When we confess, we get to experience the cross. We get to experience the cross of Jesus. We get to experience the deep mental and the physical pain of humiliation before a brother or sister in Christ. But we also get to experience the rescue, the salvation, the mercy, the love, the forgiveness that's on the other side of the cross. When we come into agreement with the cross through confession, we come out of agreement with sin's dominion over us. We want to share in the suffering of Jesus. We do that through confession. And then one last reason, benefit of confessing to a brother or sister in Christ is it causes certainty. I want to read a question to you this morning that when I read it, just unfolded, unlocked, did all sorts of things in my heart. It says, why is it easier for us to confess our sins to God than to confess our sins to a brother or sister in Christ. Think about it. Why is it easier for us to confess to God? God is holy. God is sinless. God is the the just judge of all evil. Uh, God is the enemy of all disobedience. Our brother or sister in Christ, they've fallen short of the glory of God just like we have. They've experienced secret sin just like we have. So why is it easier for us to confess to God? And why do we usually stop there? We'll confess to God, but we'll never tell a soul. Why is that? It could be that we've been deceiving ourselves into believing that we're confessing our sins to God when really we're just confessing our sins to ourselves. Get it, get it this morning. I'm going to say it again. It could be that we've been deceiving ourselves into believing that we're confessing our sins to God when really we're just confessing our sins to ourselves. We think we're dealing with God, but we're just dealing with us. And we're offering ourselves grace. And we're giving ourselves 
forgiveness. You don't want to deal with yourself. I hear people say all the time, give yourself grace. You don't want your own grace. Your own grace is stupid. God's grace is good and perfect. God's grace is the grace that's going to actually cause you to have a breach with sin. It's not your grace and it's not your forgiveness. So how can we be certain that we're not just dealing with ourselves? How can we be certain that we are dealing with God and that we really mean business? It lies, that certainty lies in our brother and sister in Christ. When we come before them and dare to be a sinner and dare to take off our mask, that certainty, we can be certain we're not just dealing with ourselves. We wanna get rid of this sin. We wanna expose this sin. That certainty lies in them. I've experienced this a couple of months ago. I sinned, I did something, and I knew that it was wrong, and I felt conviction, and I prayed about it in the car, like on the way to work, God forgive me for my sins, and you know, I think we do this little ritual where we mess up and we just talk to God about it, and then we, we move on. Also, in that little ritual, just kind of convincing myself it wasn't that big of a deal. It was innocent, like you're being too hard on yourself, giving myself grace only to find myself dealing with the same sin the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day and repeating this ritual of God forgive me help me do better God forgive me help me do better and then I heard this thought if you're really sorry and you really want out you'll tell Josh you'll dare to be a sinner Josh is my husband but he's also my brother in Christ you know spouses one of the best things one of the best revelations that you can get of your spouses they're not just your spouse they're your brother and they're your sister in Christ. And so I went to him and it was humiliating and hard, but I dared to be a sinner. And as I confessed, I was certain that I meant business with God and with my sin. I was certain that I was coming out of this self-deception and he did what he's called to do as my brother in Christ. Pray for me, extend mercy to me and declare I'm forgiven in Jesus name. I was certain as I confessed to Josh because God was there. God was there and my brother was there. I was not dealing with myself anymore. And that thing broke. Where sin is hated, admitted, and forgiven, there the break with the past is made. It's a new song day. Would you bow your heads? Thanks for listening to this week's message from New Song Church. If you have a prayer need or would like more information about New Song, you can email info at newsongpeople.com. If you would like to partner with New Song through giving, go to www.newsongpeople.com forward slash give. And if you want to stay connected to New Song, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for New Song People.